Chapter Six, Part One of Margaret Sanger by Margaret Sanger. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six, Part One Fanatics of Their Pure Ideals. We took an apartment way uptown. It was the old fashioned railroad type, big, high ceilinged, with plenty of room, air, and light. The children's grandmother came to live with us, and her presence gave me ease of mind when I was called on a case. My children were utterly safe in her care. Headlong, we dived into one of the most interesting phases of life the United States has ever seen. Radicalism in manners, art, industry, morals, politics was effervescing and the lid was about to blow off in the Great War. John Spargo, an authority on Karl Marx, had translated Das Kapital into English, thus giving impetus to socialism. Lincoln Steffens had published The Shame of the Cities. George Fitzpatrick had produced War, What For?, a strange and wonderful arraignment of capitalism which sold thousands of copies. The names of Cezanne, Matisse, and Picasso first became familiar sounds on this side of the Atlantic at the time of the notable Armory Exhibition, when outstanding examples of Impressionist and Cubist painting were imported from Europe. But there was so much of eccentricity— a leg on top of a head, a hat on a foot, the nude descending a staircase, all in the name of art, that you had to close one eye to look at it. The armory vibrated. It shook New York. Although Bill had studied according to the old school, he could see the point of view of the radical in art and in politics as well. His attitude towards the underdog was much like father's. He had always been a socialist, although not active, and held his friend Eugene V. Debs in high esteem. A religion without a name was spreading over the country. The converts were liberals, socialists, anarchists, revolutionists of all shades. They were as fixed in their faith in the coming revolution as ever any primitive Christian in the immediate establishment of the kingdom of God. Some could even predict the exact date of its advent. At one end of the scale, the rebels and the scoffers were the pink parliamentarian socialists and theorists at whom anarchists hurled the insult bourgeois. At the other were the industrial workers of the world, the wobblies, advocating unionization of the whole industry rather than the craft or trade. This was to be brought about, if need be, by direct action. Almost without knowing it, you became a comrade. You could either belong to a group that believed civilization was to be saved by the vote and by protective legislation, or go further to the left and believe with the anarchists in the integrity of the individual and that it was possible to develop human character to the point where laws and police were unnecessary. The mental stirring was such as to make it a near renaissance. Everybody was writing on the nebulous new liberties, 
Practically always people could be found to support leaders or magazines, although many of the latter lived for hardly more than a single issue. Upton Sinclair was utilizing his gift for vivid expression and righteous wrath and trying to correct social abuses by the indirect but highly effective method of storytelling. The Jungle was a powerful expose of the capitalist meat industry responsible for the embalmed beef which had poisoned American soldiers in 98. Courageous as he was, he was yet mistrusted by the socialist old guard as being a silk-hat radical who retained his bourgeois philosophy. Furthermore, he had been divorced, and divorce at that time was something of a scandal. Though anarchists minded such details not a whit, socialists were imbued with all the respectabilities. To most of these home-loving Germans, only the form of government needed change. In the United States, the party was trying to separate itself from this German influence, and the standard-bearer of the American concept was the magnetic and beloved Debs. Not himself an intellectual, he did not need to be. He was intelligent. Risen as he had from the ranks of the railroad workers, he knew their hardships from experience. Though I am not sure he actually was tall, he gave the illusion of height because of his thinness and stooping shoulders. He was all flame, like a fire spirit. That was probably why the members of his coterie followed him so gladly. Our living room became a gathering place where liberals, anarchists, socialists, and IWWs could meet. These vehement individualists had to have an audience, preferably a small, intimate one. They really came to see Bill. I made the cocoa. I used to listen in, not at all sure my opinions would be accepted by this very superior group. When I did meekly venture something, I was quite likely to find myself on the opposite side, right in a left crowd, and vice versa. Any evening, you might find visitors from the Middle West being aroused by Jack Reed, bullied by Bill Haywood, led softly towards anarchist thought by Alexander Berkman. When throats grew dry and the flood of oratory waned, someone went out for hamburger sandwiches, hot dogs, and beer, paid for by all. The luxuriousness of the midnight repast depended upon the collection of coins tossed into the middle of the table, which consisted of about what everybody had in his pocket. These considerate friends never imposed a burden either of extra work or extra expense. In the kitchen, everyone sliced, buttered, opened cans. As soon as all were replenished, the conversation was resumed practically where it had left off. Both right-wingers and left-wingers, who ordinarily objected to those in between, loved Jack Reed the master reporter just out of Harvard. He refused to conform to the rule and wrote of either, though his natural inclination appeared to be more in harmony with direct action. Behind this most highly intellectual young man loomed an uncouth, 
stumbling, one-eyed giant with an enormous head which he tended to hold on one side. Big Bill Haywood looked like a bull about to plunge into an arena. He seemed always glancing warily this way and that with his one eye, heads slightly turned as though to get the view of you. His great voice boomed. His speech was crude, and so were his manners. His philosophy was that of the mining camps where he had spent his life. But I soon found out that for gentleness and sympathy he had not his equal. He was blunt because he was simple and direct. Though he was not tailor-made, he was custom-made. Because Big Bill's well-wishers saw so much that was fine in him, they wanted to smooth off the jagged edges. When they tried to polish his speeches, Jack Reed objected, saying, Give him a free hand. He expresses what you and I think much more dramatically than we can. Don't try to stop him. We should encourage him. One of Big Bill's best friends, Jesse Ashley, was, without meaning to be, a taming influence. These two were the oddest combination in the world. Old Bill, with his one eye, stubby, roughened fingernails, uncreased trousers and shoddy clothes for which he refused to pay more than the minimum, Jesse with Boston accent and horn-rimmed glasses, a compromise between spectacles and lorgnette, from which dangled a black ribbon, the ultimate word in eccentric decoration. Jesse was one of the most conspicuous of the many men and women of long pedigree who were revolting against family tradition. She was the daughter of the president of the New York School of Law and sister of its dean. When her brother had organized the first woman's law class, she had been his pupil and later had become the first woman lawyer in New York City. Her peculiarly honest mind was tolerant towards others, but uncompromising towards herself. It was said of her truly that she was always in the forefront when it took courage to be there, always in the background when there was credit to be gained. A socialist in practice as well as theory, she spent large portions of her income in getting radicals out of jail and her own legal experience she gave freely in their behalf. Nevertheless, her appearances at strike meetings were slightly uncomfortable. Class tension rose up in waves. Many others were trying to pull themselves out of the rut of tradition. Alexander Berkman, the gentle anarchist, understood them all. He had just been freed after fourteen years' imprisonment for his attempt to assassinate Henry Clay Frick during the Homestead Steel Strike of 1892. His emergence had stirred anarchism up again, and particularly its credo of pure individualism, to stand on your own and be yourself, never to have one person dictate to another, even parent to child. Berkman's appearance belied his reputation. Blonde, blue-eyed, slightly built, with thinnish hair and sensitive, mobile face and hands. He was a thoughtful aesthetic, believing sincerely 
that the quickest way to focus attention on social outrages was to commit some dramatic act, however violent or antipathetic it might be to his nature, and then suffer the consequences. He was not at all embittered by his sojourn in jail, and had a great sense of humor, coupled with his most extraordinary understanding of the strange conjuries of people who were about to be melted down into his glowing crucible of truth. Elizabeth Gurley Flynn had made the transition from Catholicism, Jack Reed from being a Harvard man, Mabel Dodge from being a society matron. They all had had to get over being class conscious and acquire instead the consciousness of the class struggle. Berkman made friends with all, and when they were faced by problems apparently insurmountable, he advised them on their spiritual journey and supported and backed them. For this reason, he was beloved by all who encountered his most gracious charm. This was not the way of Emma Goldman, whose habit was to berate and lash with the language of scorn. She was never satisfied until people had arrived at her doorstep and accepted the dogma she had woven for herself. Short, stocky, even stout, a true Russian peasant type, her figure indicated strength of body and strength of character, and this impression was enhanced by her firm step and reliant walk. Though I disliked both her ideas and her methods, I admired her. She was really like a spring house cleaning to the sloppy thinking of the average American. Our government suffered in the estimation of the liberal world when she and Berkman were expelled from the country. Of all the strange places for these diverse personalities to meet, none more strange could have been found than in Mabel Dodge's salon, which burst upon New York like a rocket. Mabel belonged to one of the old families of Buffalo, but neither in thought nor action was she orthodox. Only in the luxurious appointments of her home did she conform. Among the sights and memories I shall never forget were her famous soirees at Ninth Street and Fifth Avenue. A certain one, typical of all the others, comes to mind. The whole gamut of liberalism had collected in her spacious drawing-room before an open fire. Cross-legged on the floor, in the best bohemian tradition, were wobblies with uncut hair, unshaven faces, leaning against valuable draperies. Their clothes may have been unkempt, but their eyes were ablaze with interest and intelligence. Each knew his own side of the subject as well as any scholar. You had to inform yourself to be in the liberal movement. Ideas were respected, but you had to back them up with facts. Expressions of mere emotion unleashed from reason could not be let loose to wander about. Listener more than talker, Mabel sat near the hearth, brown bangs outlining a white face, simply gowned in velvet, beautifully arched foot beating the air. For two hours I watched fascinatedly that silken ankle never ceasing its violent agitation. The topic of conversation turned out to be direct action. Big Bill was the figure of the evening, 
but everybody was looking for an opportunity to talk. Each believed he had a key to the gates of heaven. Each was trying to convert the others. It could not exactly have been called a debate, because a single person held the floor as long as he could. Then, at one of his most effective periods, somebody else half rose and interposed a but. The speaker hurried on. At his next telling sentence came another but. Until finally he was downed by the weight of interruptions. In the end, conversions were nil. All were convinced beforehand, either for or against, and I never knew them to shift ground. It is not hard to laugh about it now, but nobody could have been more serious and determined than we were in those days. Just before the argument reached the stage of fistfights, the big doors were thrown open, and the butler announced, Madame, supper is served. Many of the boys had never heard those words, but one and all jumped up with alacrity from the floor, and discussion was, for the moment at least, postponed. The wide, generous table in the dining room was burdened with beef, cold turkey, hot ham, hearty meat for hungry souls. On a side table were pitchers of lemonade, siphons, bottles of rye, and scotch. Mabel never stirred while the banquet raged, but continued to sit, her foot still beating the air, and talked with the few who did not choose to eat. The class contrasts encountered in a gathering there were not unique. They were to be found elsewhere, even in matrimony. When the wealthy J. G. Phelps Stokes married Rose Pastor, the Russian-Jewish cigar-maker, both families felt equally outraged. He was practically sent to Coventry by his former associates, and the Jews regarded her as a renegade, because she wore a silver cross about her neck. William English Walling, the last word in Newport, married Anna Strunsky, the last word in the Jewish intelligentsia, and himself became a leading literary critic on the radical side. Harvard had been turning out liberals by the dozen, and all of them were playing hob with accepted conventions and thought. One of these was Walter Lippmann, others were Norman Hapgood and his brother Hutchins. Hutch was then working on The Globe, a paper which, because of its broad editorial policy, was preferred by many radicals to the call. He stood by Bill Haywood and Emma Goldman, although he had much more to lose economically and socially than the out-and-out -out Reds. The anarchists seldom initiated anything, because they did not have the personnel or the equipment. But when something else was started which appeared to have any good in it, they came right in. This they did with the Farrar School on 12th Street, near 4th Avenue, in the founding of which Hutch, with the liberal journalist Leonard Abbott and the author Manuel Komroff, were moving spirits. The object was to provide a form of education more progressive than that offered by the public schools, and its name was intended to perpetuate the memory of the recently martyred Spanish libertarian Francisco Ferrar, 
who had established modern free schools in Spain, in which science and evolution had been taught. Lola Ridge, intense rebel from Australia, was the organizing secretary. Robert Henri and George Bellows gave lessons in art, and a young man named Will Durant was chosen to direct the younger children, combining in his teaching Froebel, Montessori, and other new methods. Under him, we enrolled Stuart. Will Durant was of French-Canadian ancestry. His mother had worked hard to put him through a Jesuit seminary, but just before taking the vows, he had abandoned the priesthood. While he had been studying, he had read Kraft Ebbing and Havelock Ellis, and was prepared to acquaint New York with the facts of sex psychology. Sitting nonchalantly to deliver his lectures, which evidenced scholarly background and research, he advanced to a small but serious audience practically the first public expression of this intimate subject. The young instructor created rather a problem for the directors by unexpectedly marrying a pupil, Ida Kaufman, commonly called Puck. I remember one Saturday when she was romping with Stuart, and my laundress said to her, Why, you're so young to be married. Do you like it? Puck replied, Oh, I don't care, but I'd much rather play marbles. Intellectuals were then flocking to enlist under the flag of humanitarianism, and as soon as anybody evinced human sympathies, he was deemed a socialist. My own personal feelings drew me towards the individualist anarchist philosophy, and I read Kropotkin, Bakunin, and Fourier, but it seemed to me necessary to approach the ideal by way of socialism as long as the earning of food clothing and shelter was on a competitive basis man could never develop any true independence therefore i joined the socialist party local number five itself something of a rebel in the ranks which against the wishes of the central authority had been responsible for bringing bill haywood east after his release from prison the members Italian, Jewish, Russian, German, Spanish, a pretty good mixture, used the rooms over a neighborhood shop as a meeting place, and there they were to be found every evening reading and discussing politics. Somebody had donated a sum of money to be spent to interest women in socialism, as proof that we were not necessarily like the masculine, aggressive, bulldog, window-smashing suffragists in England, I, an American and a mother of children, was selected to recruit new members among the clubs of working women. The Scandinavians, who had a housemaid's union, were the most satisfactory. They already leaned towards liberalism. Grant, who was as yet too young to go to school, wholeheartedly disapproved of my political activities. Once, when I was about to depart for the evening, he climbed up on my lap and said, Are you going to a meeting? Yes. A socialist meeting? Yes. Oh, I hate socialism. Everybody else was amused when the Sangers went to a socialist meeting. If I had an idea... I leaned over and whispered it to Bill. 
who waved his hand and called for attention. Margaret has something to say on that. Have you heard Margaret? Many men might have labeled my opinions silly, and indeed I was not at all sure of them myself, but Bill thought if I had one it was worth hearing. John Block and his wife Anita were ardent workers for the cause. She was a grand person, a Barnard graduate, and editor of the woman's page of The Call. She telephoned me one evening. Will you help me out? We have a lecture scheduled for tonight, and our speaker is unable to come. Won't you take her place? But I can't speak. I've never made a speech in my life. You simply have to do it. There isn't anybody I can get, and I'm depending on you. How many will be there? I asked. Only about ten. You've nothing to be frightened of. But I was frightened, thoroughly so. I could not eat my supper. Shaking and quaking, I faced the little handful of women who had come after their long working hours for enlightenment. Since I did not consider myself qualified to speak on labor, I switched the subject to health, with which I was more familiar. This, it appeared, was something new. They were pleased and said to Anita, Let's have more health talks. The second time we met, the audience had swelled to seventy-five, and arrangements were made to continue the lectures, if such they could be called, which I prepared while my patients slept. The young mothers in the group asked so many questions about their intimate family life that I mentioned it to Anita. Just the thing, she said. Write up your answers, and we'll try them out in the call. The result was the first composition I had ever done for publication, a series under the general title, What Every Mother Should Know. I attempted, as I had with the Hastings children, to introduce the impersonality of nature in order to break through the rigid consciousness of sex on the part of parents, who were inclined to be too intensely personal about it. Then Anita requested a second series to be called What Every Girl Should Know. The motif was, if the mother can impress the child with the beauty and wonder and sacredness of the sex function, she has taught it the first lesson. These articles ran along for three or four weeks, until one Sunday morning I turned to the call to see my precious little effort, and instead encountered a newspaper box two columns wide in which was printed in black letters what every girl should know nothing by order of the post office department the words gonorrhea and syphilis had occurred in that article and anthony comstock head of the new york society for the suppression of vice did not like them by the so-called Comstock Law of 1873, which had been adroitly pushed through a busy Congress on the eve of adjournment, the post office had been given authority to decide what might be called lewd, lascivious, indecent, or obscene, and this extraordinary man had been granted the extraordinary power, alone of all citizens of the United States, to open any letter or package or pamphlet or book passing through the mails, and if he wished, 
lay his complaint before the post office. So powerful had his society become that anything to which he objected in its name was almost automatically barred. He had turned out to be the sole censor for 90 million people. During some 40 years, Comstock had been damming the rising tide of new thought, thereby causing much harm, and only now was his hopeless contest against September morn making him absurd and an object of ridicule. But at the same time, also, John D. Rockefeller, Jr. was organizing the Bureau of Social Hygiene, in part to educate the working public regarding what were politely termed social evils. A fine start was being made, although no surveys had been completed. Lacking data, lecturers had to speak in generalities. Nevertheless, to me, who had sat through hours of highly academic exposition expressed in cultivated tones, their approach seemed timorous and their words disguised with verbiage. I saw no reason why these facts could not be given in a few minutes in language simple enough for anyone to understand. When my series was finished, it was printed in pamphlet form. I sent a copy to Dr. Prince Morrow of the Bureau, asking for his opinion and any corrections he might suggest for the next edition. To my delight, he replied, he would like to see it spread by the million. The Bureau had names and backing, but was not proceeding very fast towards educating working people regarding venereal disease. The articles in the call, on the other hand, were reaching this same class by the thousand, yet the one which mentioned syphilis was suppressed. End of chapter 6, part 1